Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for, for showing up um, to comfort me on this tragic morning. We're not amused. The, the truth is, the truth. I mean, it's a Germany thing. It's not. It's not really an England thing because there's nothing that makes Scottish people happier than England losing a football game. So you got to. But it's just we haven't been in the World Cup since 1978. Ow. So um. So these are these are hard times. These are hard times. Okay. Let's get started. I want to. I want to start. I want to talk today about a subject that men shouldn't talk about in public. Saul Berman is much braver than I am. But men talking about feminism is always going to backfire. You're always, you're always going to get into trouble with someone. So, um, I, no, I want, to talk, I want to talk seriously about, about the question of feminism and Judaism. But as is my custom, um, I'd like to try, I hope, I'd like to try and challenge you a little bit on some, of, on some of the assumptions. And I'd like to redefine what I think the issue is and redefine what I think the problem is. And today, something that we don't usually do, I, I, I mean, I do different things in these various different lectures, but what I would like to do today is to, is to go into a, a halachic discussion. I haven't done that, have I ever done that here before? I mean, it's, a, it's a side of the things that I do is to, is, to look, is, is to look at halachic literature. I don't think I've done very much halachic stuff here. I tend to talk philosophically about it. I will do that, I promise. I'll be totally in incomprehensible, I guarantee it. But I, I, I mean, that's, I know that's what you come for. So, But I, I, w I do actually want to delve into a, into a halachic discussion, but I'd like to use the halachic discussion or a particular approach to a halachic discussion to make a distinction which I think is quite key to the overall thesis that I want to present. Okay, so the overall thesis that I want to present is to try and evaluate what the, what the challenge of, of feminism is um, to, to um, contemporary Judaism. I would argue, as opposed to what a lot of people tend to argue, and this is a position I hold very fervently, that the biggest issues in the Jewish world today are not anti-Semitism and assimilation, right? We tend to think of anti-Semitism and assimilation as the fundamental issues in the Jewish world today. I think the first fundamental issue in the Jewish world today is sovereignty, dealing with Jewish sovereignty. How, how does the Jewish world come to terms with the idea that Judaism has become the religion of a sovereign state? Number two, I think the fundamental number, this is not in any order, but number two, I think the second fundamental issue in the Jewish world today is postmodernism and how we confront postmodern thought, which connects to today's theme. And the third issue that I think is absolutely fundamental is that the Jewish world today is for the first time in its history confronting very deeply the challenge of totally redefining the nature of the participant population in Jewish ritual, right? 50% of the people in the world are experiencing life today in our generation in ways that were unimaginable 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and more. It's, it's a huge, huge, huge issue. It penetrates very, very deeply. Um, it's not just a question of how do we overcome the patriarchal, chauvinistic nature of the Jewish tradition. And let's face it, the Jewish tradition is patriarchal and chauvinistic, um, as are all religious traditions, and as are all traditions of all sorts up until about 50 or so years ago, maybe a little bit more. And in many ways, the issues that feminism is confronting in the world today are not resolved. Um, 
equal opportunities in the workplace, etc., etc., etc. These things are not all resolved. They're not resolved even in America. They're certainly not resolved in Israel, and they're not, they're not resolved in the Jewish world either. So this is a huge, huge, huge fundamental issue that totally redefines what it is to be Jewish in the modern world. It changes our sensitivities very, very deeply indeed. And I say this about people who are ultra-Orthodox, and I say this about people who are Reform, and everything that's in between are Reconstructionist and Deconstructionist and Post-Constructionist, whatever you like. Um, this, is not, this is not an issue that only affects one side of the Jewish world and doesn't affect the other side, that challenges one side and doesn't challenge the other side. It's a fundamentally huge, big issue. The entire sociology of Jewish life is completely redefined by it, and I think we need to grapple with it deeply. Okay? So, I'm going to start off with a little anecdote, if I may. A little anecdote yesterday from CBI, just to kind of warm up. Um, was it yesterday or was it on Friday night? It's about Susan. <laughs> it was very funny. Um, as you know, I'm saying Kaddish for my mother. As you know, I'm saying Kaddish for my mother, and um, we were about to start the services, and I looked at Ari, and I said, well, you know, I've got a little bit of a problem, and I didn't want to say what my problem was, but he kind of figured out what my problem was. And my problem was that there were enough people in shul, there was a minyan in shul to start the service, but what are we going to do? Alex, a primitive Orthodox Jew, and I don't count women in a minyan, so I, I actually, I said, I have a problem, and my problem, I was, I'm very defensive about this, <laughs> My problem was that there weren't 10 men and 10 women, right? which, is the way, which is the way I understand um, minyan, right? 10 men and 10 women, it's my, that's my halachic loophole, my way of getting around the problem. And um, when I commented that, that the women present wouldn't be counted in a minyan, then there was, a, there was an explosion of indignance from one particular member of this community um, that actually scared the hell out of me. Oh, oh my God. Um, and, and it's not a joke. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. Tamar Ross, who is one of my, one of my um, teachers, and I think one of, the, one of the most important feminist thinkers in, in the Orthodox Jewish world, um, tells a story. I'm going to talk about her a little bit later on. But she tells a story, and it's an incredible story. This woman, just to give you a sense of who she is, she's a Talmud scholar. She teaches Talmud all over the world. She's flown around the world to lecture. She's written books. She's a full professor. She's retired. Um, she's brilliant. Um, she was once a guest speaker, a scholar in residence at a, at a kibbutz in Israel, an Orthodox kibbutz in Israel. And she was there for Shabbat. And it was Shabbat morning. And, for, and it, it was the late Minyan, right? It was at six in the morning. Um, it, you know, the kibbutz, everyone has their 4 a.m. minyan. So she went to the late minyan. She wanted to sleep in. And there weren't, there, weren't, there weren't that many people there. And she was sitting on her own in the women's section. And there were nine men. And they couldn't read the Torah, right? And she's the one who was there. She was the speaker, right? She was there to teach Torah to everyone. So the irony of that situation, she tells this story, um, she tells this story just to give a sense of the complexity of the irony of the situation, because her own position was, I, I can't be counted. Her own position was, I can't be counted, even though she is really a, a, a very forward-thinking, very um, important feminist, feminist teacher. Her own perception was, I can't be counted. So how, how, how do we get our heads around this, and, and what is the issue? Okay, so what I would like to present to you, the, the hypothesis that I would like to throw out, 
is that feminism poses a fundamental challenge to Judaism. But it poses a fundamental challenge to Judaism not because, not specifically because the issue is what are we going to do about, about the patriarchal system and how are women going to find expression in the patriarchal system. I don't think, that is the, I don't think that's an adequate articulation of the problem. I think that the problem is that the issue that you are hearing, and I think the issue that, that you were reflecting yesterday, and it's very compelling. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not dismissing this for a second. The issue that, that, that we think we are dealing with when we talk about feminism in Judaism is the issue of the rights of women. Right? The issue of the rights of women. What about my rights? Modern society allows me to be noticed. It allows me to have rights. It gives me, it gives me access to public expression. And the issue is not so much women but rights, rights. Why? Because the Jewish tradition doesn't talk about rights. The Jewish tradition does not think about the rights of individuals. That's not something that moves the Jewish tradition forward. It's not a fundamental category in Jewish thought. When we talk about the right of poor people to receive the generosity of the wealthy, the language that we would use is the language of, of caritas, right, which translates into charity. But in, in the Jewish tradition, we don't, have a, we don't have any sense of charity. We don't have a language for charity. What we talk about is tzedaka. And tzedaka is not about the right of the poor to receive. It's about the obligation of the wealthy to give. And that obligation is not some great act of generosity on the part of, of the giver. Tzedaka, the, the root of the word tzedaka is tzedek, which is to do justice, and it's to appropriately rearrange the distribution of resources, because the person who has, has an obligation to give to the person who does not have. And the Jewish language, right, the, or the, the music of Judaism, is ultimately articulated around this notion of obligation. Do I have the right to pray to God? That's not a Jewish question. It's not a Jewish question. The question will be, do I have the obligation to pray to God? And if I have that obligation, what about the people who don't have that obligation? So what's going to be my relationship with them? The Jewish tradition has this strange idea that somebody who, it's one of the most interesting ideas in Jewish thought, and it's, it's counterintuitive, but I'll say it in Hebrew, gadol which maybe is a phrase some of you have heard before. Gadol it's completely counterintuitive that the person who is obliged and performs, right, is on a higher level or has accomplished more than the person who does it voluntarily. Now, that sounds absolutely counterintuitive, right? Somebody who has an obligation, what choice have you got? You've got to do it anyway, right? So just do it. But I want to volunteer. I want to take it on for myself. I want to... The Jewish tradition doesn't value that. 
The Jewish tradition seems to have a language of valuing the person who, who performs his obligation. And as a result, when we talk about participation in prayer, the equal participation of men and women in prayer, the, the, the obstacle to the equal participation of men and women in prayer is not that women are not entitled to pray, but that they do not have the same obligation to pray as men do in classical Jewish literature. That's the challenge that needs to be overcome. If we want to talk about feminism, right, what we need to articulate, what we need to talk about is not a language of women's rights. I don't think that is adequate. I don't think it overcomes the challenges that, 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 that we are facing in our times. We need to be able to articulate a language not of equal opportunity, but a language of equal obligation in order for feminism to resonate effectively and richly within the halachic discourse. Now this is quite a difficult, a, quite a difficult mindset to, to, to it's, a, it's quite a switch, right? Because in my, in my secular life, I do use the language of rights. I talk about human rights, I talk about women's rights. I'm an active feminist, I'm very involved in all sorts of feminist, all sorts of feminist activities. And, and, one of the, and one of the one of the things that I find difficult to negotiate is how do I make a distinction between my, my concerns and my interests in, in, in feminist all sorts of feminist issues, which I articulate in a language of rights, and then how do I how do I bring that over to the world of particularly liturgical practice, right? Involvement in, in synagogue life, where the language of rights is just is just irrelevant. It's not, it's not the appropriate discourse. The discourse needs to be a language of obligation. So that's the challenge that I'm throwing out. And I'll just say in brackets that the challenge that I'm throwing out, I think, goes much further than the question just of feminism. I think we live in a, in a, in a period in time. One of the issues that is characteristic of this time, time period is that, is that different groups in our societies, and thank God they're doing it. I'm very much in favor of it, right? Different groups in our societies are standing up and saying, we have rights. We need to be noticed. Our voice needs to be heard. There shouldn't be a hegemonic voice that silences us, that doesn't see us, that doesn't dignify us. That resonates for me. It makes perfect sense. And it's not just on feminist issues. It can be on gay issues. It can be on racial issues, ethnic issues. There's so many questions where the language of rights claims my attention and it claims my conscience. When I heard you yesterday, I got a pit in my stomach. Oh God, this is a serious issue. This is a serious problem. But if we want to confront it seriously within the Jewish tradition, I would like to say, and this might be controversial, so please don't throw tomatoes at me. I would like to say that in my humble opinion, and I say this really with humility because it's, it's complicated, but in my humble opinion, jumping too quickly and too easily to egalitarianism in Judaism has, has, has created as much damage, has caused as much damage as its accomplished good. Because we've paid a huge price. We have accomplished the opportunity for egalitarianism, which is fabulous. I'm all in favor of it I, in every aspect of my life. But we've lost the discourse of obligation. And as we pay the price for losing the discourse of obligation, our sense of community and our sense of religious conviction becomes very, very severely diluted. And I think that there's something deep 
and intense and meaningful about the Jewish discourse of obligation, and when we let it crumble, we pay a very, very serious price for letting that happen. So what's the challenge? The challenge that I'm throwing out and the challenge that I am going to try and confront in a pesky and skimpy way um, and inadequately, so keep those tomatoes down, um, is the challenge of saying if we want to seriously confront feminism in Jewish thought, what we need to do is to get to the place where we can articulate obligation rather than, rather than entitlement as a motivation for changing liturgical practice. Okay, so that's, that's the big issue that I, want to, that I want to jump into. Okay, now, does anyone want to ask a question before I, before I go into my case study? Does anybody want to ask anything? Or do you want to do the case study first and questions at the end? All right, and tomatoes, is anybody reaching for them? No? Okay, all right. Okay. This is California after all, right? Um, okay, so. There's a serious question. There's a serious question that surfaces when we talk about obligation. Okay? A technical question. I'm going into something technical and, and detailed and halachic, right? But there's a technical and a serious question. Within Jewish law, when you perform a ritual on behalf of somebody else, right? So let's say I make kiddush for a group of people who are, assemb who are assembled or I say hamotzi for a group of people who are assembled, or I read from the Torah for a group of people who are assembled. The assumption is that there are, that there are varying degrees of obligation, right? Varying degrees of obligation. There are basically three tiers of obligation. I'm not gonna break them down. But you need to be on a, at least on an equal footing or on a higher level of obligation in order to perform a ritual for somebody else. There's the Hebrew phrase, when I perform a ritual for somebody else, it's called l'hotzi yedei chova, right? Which is to fulfill for them their obligation. And I can only fulfill the obligation of another if my level of obligation is higher, right? I can only fulfill the obligation of another if my level of obligation is higher. So let me give us a, a less controversial example. If I'm sitting around the table at, at, in my family and I've got my children around me, right? If I read out the words of Birkat Hamazon, everybody in the room can sit quietly. They don't need to sing. They don't need to say the words. They can just listen to me and that's enough, right? because I can perform their obligation for them. On the other hand, on the other hand, if I, was, if I would, were to ask one of my children to, to read out the words of Birkat Amazon for everyone in the family, which is something, by the way, that I do all the time because I'm trying to educate them and initiate them into the tradition. They're a bunch of animals, but they're getting initiated into the tradition. And if I ask them to do that, I need to, I need to mumble the words to myself under my breath, which drives my daughter absolutely to distraction, right? So I kind of do this so she doesn't think, I can see you, Abba. But um, I, I, I need to mumble the words to myself because she cannot, or I don't have any boys who are under bar mitzvah anymore, I used to. Um, but, but when my boys were under bar mitzvah, then I couldn't, I couldn't let them 
perform my obligation for me. They needed, they needed to do it for educational purposes and they learned how to do it. And I mumbled under my breath because I, I needed to say the words for myself. So this is a fundamental halachic category. Right, you might be familiar, I don't know which synagogues you go to on Rosh Hashanah, but there's a, there's a very personal obligation for men and for women, right? it's a shared obligation in this case, to listen to the, 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 call, the, the sound of the shofar. Right? And in most synagogues, before blowing the shofar, the bal tokea, the person who blows the shofar, has to ask the permission of everybody there right, to, to allow him to perform their obligation for them. Right? We actually do it in Kiddush as well. When I say, Birshut, right? Birshut Maranam Barabanam Barabotai, or Savri Maranam Barabotai, you familiar with that? Everybody shouts out, Lachaim, right? What is that? That is me asking your permission to perform your obligation for you. When you shout out, Lachaim, you're agreeing. Right? Did you know that's what you were doing? Now you do. So when, when, when I say Birshut, the word Birshut means with your permission, right? With your permission. Right? I need your permission to perform an obligation for you. And if you don't give me your permission, I can't perform the obligation for you. If your, if your obligation is equal to mine. Right? So I'm just trying to convince you or show you that this discourse is, is very deeply rooted in, in, in the tradition as you know it. What do we do when we, when we, when we encounter a situation that we want to include women in the ritual participation, and I want to talk today about reading the Torah, but their obligation is not the same as the obligation of men. Okay? So we can say, oh, blow it away. To hell with it. It's fine. We're going to be egalitarian about it. That works. It can be done. The argument can be made. But I don't think we pay enough attention to the prices that are paid. So I'm going to try and walk you through an alternative way of thinking about this and see if you can find it, if you can find, if you can find it compelling. I don't know, by the way, if the people in the room are feminists or not, if the men in the room, the women. I don't know what your, what your positions are on this issue. Right? I'm a feminist, um, and these issues challenge me, challenge me very deeply, and I, I need to think about them. So I'm going to work it through with you. Okay? And I want to talk about the reading of the Torah. All right, so we're going to go halachic now. I've never gone halachic with an audience in Orange County, I don't think. So here we go. The question of, of reading the Torah is actually quite a, quite a complicated one. Um, what is it that prevents women from participating in the reading of the Torah? Um, there seems to be a problem. There seems to be an obstacle which bars women from participating actively in the reading of the Torah. It's something that Jewish people did not do up until the 20th century. It was unheard of. Right? And, and it, wasn't, it just wasn't part, wasn't, part of, wasn't part of the ritual. Now, we could argue that that's sociological. We could argue all sorts of things. I'll tell you one thing that it isn't. Absolutely for sure, without any doubt whatsoever, the issue is not women's voices being heard in public. That is not an issue. If you've heard of kol isha, right? Has anyone ever heard that phrase? Kol isha is not the issue here. It's completely not the issue. It's absolutely unequivocally clear that that is not the objection. And I can explain why. Because there's another objection which I want to talk about with you. And when, when we look at this other objection, it becomes clear. There's actually the Tosafot, one of the, one of the medieval commentators asks, why have we got another objection? Why isn't the problem called Isha? Why isn't that the reason for, for preventing women from reading from the Torah in public? And the Tosafot itself provides the answer that called Isha, hearing, of, hearing a woman's voice in public, does not apply in, in the synagogue. All right? It's a very interesting idea. 
that hearing a woman's voice in public, there are people who object to that. I actually think we can rethink that one much more broadly and not just outside the synagogue. But hearing a woman's singing voice in public is, is, is clearly, halachically, not a category that applies within the context of ritual. Right? The ritual is, is, is just not a place where, where that issue, where that issue is, is, is deemed problematic in classical, classical Jewish texts. So we can move that aside. Maybe some other time we'll talk about whether or not kol isha can be overcome outside of, of, of the ritual life. I think it can. I think um, the connotations are very different um, in our modern world. But that's, that's another conversation. So what is the objection? Why can women not read from the Torah? The reason is because of a concept very strange concept called Kvod Hatzibur. Kvod Hatzibur. I'm not going to translate it for you. Not just yet. All right? Kvod Hatzibur. Let's have a look at the first text. This is a, this is a text from, from the Tosefta. The Tosefta is a halachic work that is more or less um, contemporaneous with the Mishnah, right? which means it was written more or less around the second century. And it, is, it contains the same players as the players in the Mishnah. It's all in English. I've got the Hebrew there for you, but the English is there as well. So don't get, don't get thrown by the Hebrew. And the Tosefta, the difference between the Tosefta and the Mishnah is the Tosefta is a little bit more long-winded. Um, it, 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 it goes on a little bit longer. It, it's, it's more, it's more, it gives more, more information. And that's what makes it a very interesting text. So I'm going to read it in Hebrew, and then I'll read it in English. Everyone is included in the counting of seven people to be called up to read from the Torah on the Sabbath, even a woman, even a child. Notice the even. And notice the association of women and children. So those of you who are looking to get offended, kick in now. One does not bring a woman to read in public. If a synagogue has only one person who is able to read, he stands, reads, and sits, and reads, and stands, and sits, and reads, and stands, and sits, even seven times. Okay? So what is the Tosefta saying? Tosefta seems to have a, an inbuilt internal contradiction. Right? It says anybody can be called up to read from the Torah. Anybody can be called up to read from the Torah. Then it tells us even a woman and even a child. Now, women and children fall into a category of people who are not primarily obliged to perform rituals that have set times, right? Set times. So what the Tosefta seems to be saying in its first sentence is that women are included in the, in the reading of, of the Torah, and then whoop, it changes its mind. And it says something else. It says, well, wait a minute, no, no, no. But one does not bring a woman to read in public. Do you notice that? The text is contradictory. Can you see that? It actually says one thing and then it contradicts itself, which is just another illustration of my claim that one Jew in a room and you have at least two arguments, right? So, so it's one text saying the same thing and then exactly the opposite in the same sentence, right? That a woman can read from the Torah and then she can't. Um, and, and it goes to the extent of saying if there's only one person who knows how to read, then that person should stand up and read and sit down and stand up and read and sit down. What that means is that you call him up for all seven aliyot, right? Because in the good old days, and a lot of people do this today as well, it's a lovely ritual that has been revived. When you call somebody up from the Torah, the person who's called up reads for, for him or herself, right? So you make the blessing, you read, then you go and you sit down, and you come back and you read. And you One person should do it 
rather than, rather than including women, which seems to suggest that the, that the Tosefta is kind of trying to cover up something here. It's trying to suggest that the reason why women shouldn't read is because maybe they don't know how to read so well or something like that. And if there's only one guy who knows how to read, then call it. This is a, this is a text that seems to be struggling with something. Yes. No, it's not a discussion. I'll tell you what's going on here. There's a simple explanation for this. No, no. There really is a simple explanation for this. There is a simple explanation for this. It can be proven by looking at the manuscripts of the Tosefta. There's absolutely no doubt um, the scholarship on this is, is, is solid. The second sentence is a later edition. And it was added on 350 years later. The second sentence is a later edition. It was added on 350 years later. And the reason why it was added on, somebody wanted to plant something back into the Tosefta without blatantly contradicting the Tosefta. It kind of hints that I suppose women can read, but we don't really want them to. So we'll come up with a reason. They don't really know how to read. But the real reason is that the Tosefta needed to be streamlined to fit with the next text, which appears in the Talmud. And then I'll answer Nira's question. I'll read it in Hebrew, and then I'll read it for you in English. Tanur Abanan. It's quoting the Tosefta, which is what we've just read in the Tosefta. Everyone is included in the counting of seven. If you turn over the page, you'll see it. Even a woman and even a child. It's a quote. We're quoting from the Tosefta. But the Talmudic rabbis added on, even although, a, even though we've just said that in principle, even women can read. We have a later Talmudic edition that gets worked back into the text of the Tosefta that has given us a reason for why women can't read. And this reason is Kvod Hatzibul, whatever that means. And I want to leave it open. Kvod Hatzibul means something. And it seems to be a reason for why women are not allowed to read from the Torah. Okay? So... My question is, what does Kvod HaTzibul mean? How can we understand it? And are there ways of looking at it that can open a door for thinking differently about the participation of women in religious ritual, for thinking differently from the way that th these issues were dealt with in the Talmud? Okay, so that's where, that's where I want to go. Yes, Nira, I see you had a question. Don't translate it. I don't understand it either. Child, no difference, no difference. Halakhali, there's no difference between a, between a little boy or a little girl. Katan, oktana, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. If you look at the, if you look at the first Mishnah... That's the question. That's my question. That is the question. What does Kvod Hatzibul mean? What does it refer to? Okay. Clearly, this is the obstacle that anybody who wants to, in, to, to include women in the reading of the Torah needs to be able to explain this concept of Kvod Hatzibul. Oh, go ahead. Yes, somebody at the back. Go ahead and see. I explain it. I just had a question. Go ahead. Read 
Yeah, there's only one problem with that. Okay. Yeah. So it says in here that there's, um, that it says if synagogue has only one person. It's this person, but I wanted to know if in the Hebrew it actually refers to a masculine or a Absolutely, yes. Echad. Okay. Masculine and not achat. Okay. Yeah. Completely masculine. Completely masculine, yeah. So... The reason, why, the reason why the Tosefta gets trumped is because the Talmud has, has so much more authority than the Tosefta, right? The Talmud is the text that defines the discourse of Jewish law, right? And the Talmud has raised an objection, Kvod Hatsipu. So I want, to try, I want to try and look at this issue, what does Kvod Hatsipu mean, right? So I didn't translate it in the English. I said women may not read because of Kvod Hatsipu. Now I'm going to start teasing out this, teasing out this term for you. One of the common explanations of Kvod HaTzibur, and I don't think it works, but one of the common explanations of Kvod HaTzibur is that it refers to the dignity of the community. Right? Kavod means dignity. It's one of the meanings of the term. And Tzibur refers to, sorry, yeah, dignity, Kavod, and Tzibur refers to the community. So somehow, the dignity of the community is, is violated by the participation of women in the reading of the Torah. That's the way, that's the way, this, idea, that's the way this idea plays out. So this, this, is a, this is an argument, this is a reading which seems to take on the words literally. And you can, you can, you know, you don't need to go very far to make sense of this. You can just make a chauvinist, you know, description of this, that women, that's not their place. So you can do one of those, any, any of those kinds of arguments and find it, you know, find it offensive and, and read it that way. Yeah. Well, you're referring specifically to the community, and the concern is only that of the male community. The women are not considered part of the community. Because the women would have not considered women. Okay, work with me on this, guys. I'm trying to get to a resolution of this issue. Don't like, I'm trying. I'm I'm trying to show you. I'm trying to show you the obstacles in classical Jewish texts, right? And I'm trying to show you what it is that we're up against and what we need to deal with if we want to reevaluate the role of women, right? Now, the option that might seem to you to make sense is, okay, this is offensive. Let's throw it out. That's not. That's not where I. That's not my attitude, right? That's not my approach. But I do think there's stuff we can do, and we need to think cleverly and deeply about fulfilling our objective, right, which is to articulate a language of obligation. That's, that's the way I want to go with this. At the end, if you don't find it satisfying, that's fine. I'm, just, I'm hoping to stimulate some thought. Okay, so here we go. Here we go. Just if it calms you down, I go to a synagogue where women read from the Torah, right? So, like, um, the, the issue here, the issue here that I want to present is a textual one. Okay, I want to work with the texts. So you could say that you're upset by the sensibilities of Kvod HaTzibor. It's insulting, right? And one of the, one of the, there are two ways of reading it. They're very common and they're very, they're very well known and they're published. Reading number one is to say that, the, that the, the participation of women violates the dignity of the community for erotic reasons. Right? That there's, there's, something, there's something inappropriate or, or erotically distracting about, about the presence of women in, in, in the performance of the ritual. That's one classic way of reading it. By the way, that's the way the Reform Movement read it. The Reform Movement reads this text. The, 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 the thinkers in the Reform Movement who were making moves to change the halachic status of women, their, their, their analysis was, Kvot HaTzibor refers to something erotic, 
And because of that, it involves the objectification of women. And since we live in a society in which that kind of objectification is, is, is put aside so we can reject this concept and overcome it. That was, that was basically the line of argument that was used in the reform movement. In the conservative movement, the thinker who really blew this subject open was David Galinkin. And the way that David Galinkin read this text was to argue that Kvod Hatzibur referred to the dignity of the community in the sense that it was embarrassing and inappropriate for men to be shown up by women who could read the Torah better than they could, right? And his argument was, on the same grounds, his argument was, on the same grounds, because that no longer applies, and the men should just learn to bite the bullet, right? So, so Kvod HaTzibur becomes a redundant objection, and, as, and because Kvod HaTzibur is a redundant objection, that is his reason for articulating an alternative um, kind of ritual involvement in the conservative movement. There have been orthodox thinkers, right, who have argued that Kvod HaTzibur is a halachic term that refers to the dignity of the community. Right? I'm going to go on a completely different track. But there are orthodox thinkers who have argued that Kvod refers to the dignity of the community, but that term, in terms of its halachic weight, in terms of its legal, its legal force, is overcome or trumped by a greater concern, which is the, another halachic concept of Kvod Habriot which is the dignity of humanity. And in a post-feminist environment, if the dignity of people is violated, that dignity, that violation trumps the notion of the dignity of the community. And he tries to show how the term Kvod HaTzibur is a weaker term than the term Kvod HaBriot, right? And, and he tries to show how Kvod HaBriot will trump Kvod HaTzibur, and for that reason, it's more important for women to be, to be included in the ritual because the violation of, of their humanity is, is, is a higher price to, to pay than the, than, the, than the violation of the community's sense of its, of its communal dignity. Which, which Orthodox thinker makes that argument? Sorry? You said this, you said that Guy called Mendel Shapiro. Right, guy called Mendel Shapiro. The argument's also been made by um, by Danny um, no Sperber, Danny Sperber, Professor Danny Sperber, yeah, Rabbi Professor Danny Sperber. And he thinks that the community don't. Yeah, that's in the Talmud. That's in the Talmud. That's that's. That, no, that was the one that I referred to at the beginning. The dignity of the community is compromised when people think that, that the women can outshow the men. Right? That's in the Talmud. That's in the Talmud. That's in the Talmud. All right. So, I want to I want to to, to open this up a little bit. All right. I'd like to open this up a little bit. I don't know why your men are so. Think back to your childhood, Nira. Um, okay, so I would like I would like to try and open this up to a different to a different discourse. Okay, I have two serious I have two serious criticisms of the way in which this text has been has been read by all of those 
First serious criticism is that I don't think that you can solve this problem in halachic terms alone without offering a feminist reading of the texts. I think it's absolutely critical. We need to recognize that the feminist, feminist movement has more than one wave and more than one generation. And the feminist movement has moved much, much more deeply um, into our culture than just articulating the rights of women, right? There was the, you know, bra-burning, truck-driving generation of suffragettes, right? But today's feminist movement is far, far more sophisticated. And the, the discourse that we, that, we, that we encounter in feminist scholarship is not the discourse of feminism alone, but a discourse of gender, which allows us to have a perspective, a very deep perspective, on the whole nature of the gendering of our, of, our, of our society and of our judgments and of our texts and of our traditions and to recognize the circumstances under which our genderings are contingent and the circumstances under which they are not. And that is something that I think is a deep accomplishment when we recognize that the language that we use is gendered, that decisions have been made that weren't necessarily made by God, right? That there are features of our human constructions of social imagination, which are gendered and can therefore be revisited and reconsidered, right? I think, I think that, that that move of the feminist movement, which is to reread Shakespeare and to reread re art and reread theater and reread everything and develop a perspective, develop a prism that, that heightens our sensitivities. To, to the gendering of the society around us, that's something that I think opens a lot of doors and helps us to get a, gain much, much deeper insight. So that's my first criticism. I think if you want to make a feminist move in Jewish law, you need to produce a feminist reading. So that's point number one. Point number two is that Kvot HaTzibur applies in all kinds of cases that have got nothing or seem to have nothing to do with women reading from the Torah. So everybody who analyzes Kvodotzibor the way we've done it up until now, and this is my big critique. I actually published an article about this. If anybody's interested in reading it, I'd be happy to send it off to you. But, but my, my big criticism, the vast majority of what people had to say about this is that their assumption was that when Kvodotzibor is used as an objection for women reading the Torah, the term applies only in that case. But that's not true. It applies in all kinds of other cases as well, and those cases are connected. And it's very interesting. So... I want to run through, very quickly, those cases with you. Talmud Gittin 60a. A community may not read from a chumash in the sense of a single scroll containing only one of the five books of Moses, right? Imagine, you know, you've got a scroll. Imagine instead of it having all five books, it's, it's a smaller, thinner one that just has breshit or just has shmot, right? You're not allowed to read the Torah from a, from a scroll that has one of the chumashim and not, not all five. Why? Because of kvod hatzibu, right? A kohen, a priest may not ascend to the podium to deliver the, the priestly blessing, right? Right? They can't go wearing sandals to give the priestly blessing. Why? Because of kvod hatzibul. Right? This term seems to apply in other cases. Turn over. <coughs> right? A poor child with ripped clothes right? is entitled to read the Shema but he may not read from the Torah because of 
כבוד הציבור. There it is, that's the Talmud in Megillah. So a child with ripped clothes cannot read from the Torah because of כבוד הציבור. The Torah scroll, this is an interesting one, may not be rolled in front of the community in a way that forces the members to stand and wait because of כבוד הציבור. Right, now that's one that might be accessible. Think about it. You're, it it's, it's Shabbat morning, and you're about to read from Parshat Balak, which is the one that we read from yesterday. You open up the Sefer Torah, and you're in the middle of Shemot, right? And everybody's got to stand around while the rabbi and the cantor, you know, do this and roll at the front, and everybody's standing around, and, you know, you can smell the Kiddush, and everybody wants to get out already. And everybody's being kept waiting, so the dignity of the community is violated by that. Maybe that's accessible to us, you know, because the dignity of the community, we're not going to do that. Now, how does that connect with, with women reading from the Torah? Another one, from the Talmud in Sota. ואמר רבי תנחום, אמר רבי יהושע בן לוי, אין שליח ציבור רשאי להפשיט את התיבה בציבור מפני כבוד הציבור. Right? I'm turning it over to give it to you in English. The cantor in the synagogue may not remove the cloth covering from the lectern. Right? You know, if you go to the bima and there's a beautiful cloth covering with little tinsels on it saying donated by Sadie and George Rosenberg in memory of their 75th wedding anniversary, right? You can't take that off, off the bima, right? You're not allowed to remove that from the bima. Why? Because of Kvod HaTzibol. What's that about? Don't answer, it's a rhetorical question. Now, One final little thing that I want to say before I launch into my, into my analysis of this is that when we look at this particular response of the Rambams, right? It's actually an unpublished response. It, it appears in a manuscript that's, that's held in the National Library in Jerusalem. It is clear that for the Rambam, Kvot HaTzibor is not a trivial or a secondary issue, right? It's a powerful objection. which I think blows the idea of, of Kvoda Sibor being trumped by Kvoda Briot that I referred to before, the dignity of humanity overcoming. The, the Rambam understands Kvoda Sibor is a very, very deep, deep problem. He's talking about reading um, from a Chumash. And he says the rabbis of the Talmud should have ruled against this, saying that the Chumash is a faulty ritual object, right? Why can I not read from a Chumash? Because it's not a Sefer Torah. Everybody knows you need a, you need a kosher Sefer Torah. If, it, if there's a, a letter that's slightly... slightly scratched, then you can't read from the Sefer Torah. So clearly, if you've got four books missing, right, you won't be able to read from the Sefer Torah. So the Rambam asks, well, how come that's not their objection? So he learns from that that Kvod HaTzibul is actually a significant term because nobody objects to the reason, nobody claims that using Kvod HaTzibul as a reason for preventing people from reading from a single Chumash is an inadequate claim that isn't more powerful than the objection, of the, of, of, than the objection to the reading um, being based on the fact that you've only got one of the five books when, when you need to have a full Sefer Torah, right? And in that, I didn't have a better translation than nobody has uttered such as a Twitter or something. But nowadays Twitter became, I know, the internet has ruined that one for me. I'll have to, I'll have to retranslate that one. But my point is that, that the Rambam makes it quite clear here. Kvod Hatzibor is a significant category, not a weak one. So what does it mean? Here's my attempt at providing an answer that explains all of the cases. Yes? Well, I think the word 
Absolutely. And that's what's changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like to ask your forbearing for a minute to let me let me give let me give you an analysis of this because I've, I've I've I think I have some different things to say, um, and and then and then we can open up and discuss it, and I'd be very happy to. I'd like to read it from a, a feminist perspective, okay? And I'd like to I'd like to present the fundamental theme here, and the fundamental idea here. It'll take me a few minutes to convince you this is even re remotely relevant. But I want to present here the idea that the fundamental issue that is in play here is the physiological perception of the difference between the male physiology and the female physiology. A different understanding of the relationship between the bodies. Okay? I'd like to say that the theme that is being played out in this whole discussion concerns the nature of the body. Now, the body is a metaphorical term and the social body, and we're going to see. Body goes all, in all kinds of directions. But the idea that bodies are understood differently in the context in which these texts are being composed has been articulated brilliantly by the leading feminist historian on the whole issue of the way in which the body was dealt with in the pre-modern world. She is a, a professor of, of history for many years at Columbia University, and she now teaches, she's now a scholar in the Advanced Institute in Princeton. And her name is Carolyn Walker Bynum. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Carolyn Walker Bynum. Um, she is one of the foremost thinkers on feminist history in the world today. And she wrote a phenomenal book called Holy Feast and Holy Fast. And it's an analysis of religious ritual in the church and the different ways in which women participated in religious ritual in the church in late antiquity and into the Middle Ages. So she's talking about the same time period that these Jewish texts are being articulated in. So late antiquity through to the Middle Ages, right? Let's have a look at what Carolyn has to say about the way in which medieval thinkers early medieval and later medieval thinkers understood the differences between the male body and the female body. Have a look at the, I think it's the last text in the handout. Carolyn Walker Bynum, it's from her book, Holy Feast and Holy Fast. Medieval natural philosophers argued that men and women are really a superior and inferior version of the same physiology. Women's reproductive system was just man's turned inside out. Medieval scientific ideas, especially in their Aristotelian version, made the male body paradigmatic. Right? We're, familiar that, we're familiar with that from Greek culture. Right? The celebration of the male body was, was, was a fundamental feature of classical Greek culture. It was the form or pattern or definition of what we are as humans. If you think we're past it, by the way, how come the World Cup is just a man's only competition? We're not past it, we've got a long way to go. What has particularly, what was particularly womanly was the unformedness or physicality of our humanness. Such a notion identified women with breaches in boundaries with lack of shape or definition, 
with openings and exudings and spillings forth. What a sentence. Men and women had the same sex organs. Men's were just better arranged. These assumptions made the boundary between the sexes extremely permeable. I want to explain that last sentence because it's absolutely key. What Bynum is doing here, and this is one of the most brilliant feminist analysis I've ever read. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. What Bynum is doing here is she is articulating the difference between the male body and the female body, but she's articulating it as two opposites, right? There's clearly a hierarchy between those, those opposites, right? But the nature of the relationship between them is permeable. Now, I don't think she's thinking about cross-dressers here and sex changes and transvestites and Dana International and, and that kind of thing, right? Dana International, do you know Dana International? She's a very famous Israeli singer who was born a man. But, but the, the, um, the issue that, that Bynum is talking about here is, is how these two situations, when you think of them as being inside out, right? They're actually two versions of the same thing, right? One which is kind of well-organized and appropriately organized, if you like, and one which is less well-organized and less appropriately organized, right? You know, exudings and spillings forth as opposed to I don't know what, right? So, and if I do, I'm not going to say. So, if we have, if we have, if we're trying to enter into the medieval mentality here, and into the mentality of late antiquity. What Bynum gives us, and I think this is the key, it's really, really interesting. What Bynum gives us is the possibility of articulating a metaphor, the metaphor of the body, right? And there are all sorts of things that we talk about as bodies, and I'll give you some examples in a minute. But the metaphor of the body that can be constructed in two different situations. One situation would be a masculine situation, and the other situation would be a feminine situation. Am I boring you, by the way? Are you following me here? Okay. So let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. My favorite example, it's the best example I know in, in the Jewish tradition, is the example of the ritual object of the Sefer Torah. Undoubtedly, the central ritual object of the Jewish tradition. If you look at a Sefer Torah, it looks like a body, right? It looks like a body. It's got two arms, right? And it's got two legs. And when you hold it, you hold it more or less the way you hold a child, right? If you get a really big one, it's the way you pick up a, you pick up a person, right? It looks like a body. But even if you don't think it looks like a body, and I really do think it does, the ritual makes a very, very big deal of connecting the Sefer Torah with the idea of body. So we have a yad, which means a hand, which is hanging off the Sefer Torah, right? We put a crown onto the head of the Sefer Torah. We call it Keter Torah, and we put a crown on the head of the Sefer Torah. And we hold it the way we hold children. We pass it around and kiss it the way we pass around and kiss children. We bury it and say Kaddish over it when a Sefer Torah becomes totally violated and is no longer usable, right? We bury it 
and we say Kaddish over it. I actually have a whole text that was all about that that's in the handout. I'm, I'm, I'm going to skip over, but there's a whole discussion of, of, of different ways of holding the Sefer Torah. And one of the ways of holding it is, is described in the Talmud as arum, naked. Right? Naked. We actually have rituals and customs in the Middle Ages that if there are 10 men in a service, you can read from the Sefer Torah. If there are nine men in a service and you're missing one guy for the minyan, you can use the Sefer Torah to complete the minyan because it's like another person, it's like another body. Right? And the question is, of course, what is the gender of this body? What is the gender of this body? Is this a little guy or is it a little girl? And it seems to me to be, and I hope you won't find this too crude, please forgive me, but if we look at, well, if you find it a little bit crude, I'll get a laugh, so I suppose it's worth it. Um, but it's going on the internet, so, all right. Um, but if, if, if we think about it, this is a body that can actually move between different situations. There are circumstances under which this body seems to be one of the guys, right? Think about, your, think about Simchat Torah, right? So everybody's dancing around and the guys now doing this male thing, right? And they're dancing around and the Sefer Torah is dancing around with them, right? But what happens when we undress in public the Sefer Torah, right? We peel off the clothes of the Sefer Torah in public, right? And lay it open. And think about what we do when we read from the Sefer Torah, right? The Yad, right? We read from the Sefer Torah. And if we think about the gendering of that situation, this, this ritual object has moved from being a male object, right, to being a female object. That's, the, what, that's what Bynum is talking about when she's talking about the, the, the switch between the genders as being permeable. Now, when you hold it up for all the men to look at, what do they all do? Everyone blows a kiss at the Sefer Torah. It's not a joke. Everyone blows a kiss at the Sefer Torah. There is adoration of the Sefer Torah in which it functions clearly in a feminine role. Now, we need to understand what that role is but it clearly shifts between different genderings. Now, if you can imagine the idea of, 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 the, of the Sefer Torah being rolled up and held, right, and functioning in a masculine way, what it does is it gives you strength. It's a source of masculine strength. So what do you say to somebody who's touched the Sefer Torah? koach. Or if you're Sephardic, you say, Hazak. Chazak, chazak, chazak right? Having access to the Sefer Torah seems to be connected to a very complicated set of, of gendering shifts. When you're called up to the Sefer Torah, right? You're called up to make a blessing. It's rolled up, it's closed, right? You open it. You make the blessing. You read from it. You roll it up again. Right? People don't necessarily know that you're supposed to do that. You don't say the blessing when, it's, when, the Torah is, when the Torah is open. You open it, you look at it, then you roll it up to make the blessing. Right? You make the blessing when it's closed. That's, that's, the way, that's the way it's traditionally done. 
So you're moving in all sorts of circumstances. Now just think about what you do with the Sefer Torah when you take it out of the ark, right? So you walk around with it closed, and then you open it, and then you show it to everybody. These are, these are body imageries, and if you think about them within the context of medieval Christendom, the comparisons with the Corpus Christi are absolutely unbelievable. The Corpus Christi is the flesh of Christ, it's body. Right? What do you do with the Corpus Christi? You pull, call people up to receive communion, and then when they go back from communion, you kiss their faces. Right? There's the elevatio, where you hold, where you hold the, the consecrated hosts up for everyone to see, and people blow kisses at the, at the consecrated host. Right? The, the, when you consecrate a new church, right? you're gonna like this one, you dance in with consecrated hosts under a canopy and put them in the altar. When you consecrate a new synagogue, it's called Hachnasat Sefer Torah. Guess what you do? You dance in with a, with a Sefer Torah under a canopy and put, it in, and put it in the Aron. Ritually, the language that surrounds the use of the Sefer Torah is very similar to the language that surrounds, when I say language, I mean in anthropological terms, the ritual that surrounds the Sefer Torah is very similar to the ritual that surrounds the use of the Corpus Christi, right? Israel Yuval, who's one of, my, one of my teachers in Israel, calls the Sefer Torah the Corpus Christi Judeorum, right? The Jewish, the Jewish Corpus Christi, right? It, 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 clearly, it clearly functions. It's an object that we use, it's an object that we use for, 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 for making oaths. It functions in all kinds of different ways. What I want to put out on the table is that its different functions are gendered. And that we have female use of the Sefer Torah and male use of the Sefer Torah. That's not really the right terminology. We have masculine and feminine use of the Sefer Torah. Now, I'd like to argue that that idea actually extends beyond the Sefer Torah. And it extends into the ritual objects that surround the Sefer Torah. So if I have a lectern on which I place the Sefer Torah, I can either have the lectern covered, which would be a masculine situation, or uncovered, remembering Bynum's distinction, which would be a feminine situation. I can talk about a Sefer Torah in its full virile form, all five books, and I can talk about the Sefer Torah in its inverted or diminished form when I've only got one of the five books. I can talk about a child who is dressed and a child who's ripped. The child's, the body dressed, uncovered, covered. These, these cases seem to share in common the one thing that there is a gendering of the ritual situation which can be masculine and feminine. And when that gendering of the ritual situation is violated, we encounter the objection of Kvod Hatzibur. Now here's the key to this. I don't think the word Kvod Hatzibur refers to the dignity of the community. I think it's a mistranslation. The word Kavod does not only mean dignity. The word kavod refers to the masculine presence of God. Shir HaKavod, anyone familiar with Shir HaKavod, the songs of Shir HaKavod? When Isaiah encounters the throne of God, right, what does he encounter? Kiseh HaKavod, you familiar with the term? Kiseh HaKavod is the throne of the divine presence. 
Kavod refers fundamentally to the masculine revelation and the masculine presence of God. When the synagogue assembles, and there are 10 men in the synagogue, the divine presence is there. Right? The Talmud says it. Right? When the divine presence is there, they can perform sacred rituals. When the divine presence is missing, they can't perform sacred rituals. When there are nine men and they bring the Sefer Torah, the Sefer Torah represents the body of God, creating a sacred situation in which they can perform sacred rituals. There's only one major problem with this whole halachic discourse. And that is the problem of the theology. Not the law, not the sociology, but the theology. Because Kavod is not on his own. Kavod has a partner in heaven and her name is Shechina. Kavod and Shechina come together. That's monotheism, right? Monotheism is not that there is a single God. I've said this a hundred times, right? Monotheism is the unity of all of the components of God. That's what makes monotheism such an interesting idea. We've got a hundred different names for God and they're all one somehow. But there is, but Kavod and Shekhinah come together, right? Kavod and Shekhinah are united with each other. Kavod Hatzibur is violated when a situation that is perceived normatively as masculine and is connected to a masculine presence of God is violated. However, one of the things we can start thinking about in the modern world is the possibility of developing not a more liberal halakha that allows women to do stuff that they were previously barred from doing. I think we need to start articulating a richer, a deeper, and a more sensitive theology which recognizes the presence of kavod and shechina, the different situations in which the Sefer Torah plays out. One of them might violate kavod hatzibul, and the other one might vindicate hashchina sheshora batzibu, the presence of shchina in the community. The game isn't just a game about kavod; it's also a game about shchina. So I'm not suggesting that, that a feminist approach to Judaism leaves the, the law unchanged. The law changes. What I'm suggesting is that the way to think about developing a new approach to Jewish law is a way that recognizes, and this is the fundamental insight of Tamar Ross, who I referred to before, a way that recognizes the process of feminism in the, in the world. It's unfolding, it's in front of us. You might like it, you might not like it. It doesn't matter, it's happening. It's a thing, I happen to like it. But you might not, but it's happening. And the world is changing before our very eyes. And as the world changes before our very eyes, our sensitivities to what is created in the world change. And we can therefore understand the feminist movement as a movement that is participating in a process of the revelation of Shechina. Now, Shechina is in the classical Jewish literature. Shechina is in Kabbalistic literature. Shechina is in mystical Jewish literature. 
Shekhinah functions as a, as a halachic category. And my question is, and it's a serious question, can we allow ourselves to worship a masculine God in a world in which it is a clear and apparent to us that there are feminine presences in the divinity that are becoming vocal, that are coming alive, that the femininity of creation is being vindicated. It's coming alive. It's one of the most incredible moments of revelation in our time. I would ask the question, not are women entitled to read from the Torah, but in our time, can we get away with serving half of God with half of humanity? Maybe we can't pull it off. We can't fulfill our religious obligations as this world is revealing them to us by serving half of what God might be all about with half of what humanity is all about. We're living in a period in which we are confronting a new obligation, which is to serve God with all of humanity in order to appreciate as much as possible of divinity. I would say that we can argue that a service in which men only read from the Torah is a service in which the obligation of reading from the Torah is inadequately fulfilled. It's not that women should be entitled to read from the Torah. The language of human rights does not move me. I'm not a liberal. I might look like one, but I'm not one. I'm not a liberal. I find liberalism very violent. I find liberalism very frightening. Liberals tend to kill people who aren't liberals. I find them very, very frightening. I'm not a liberal. I do think that from within a discourse, which is not a liberal discourse, from within a discourse that is a discourse of, of obligation, we can pose a challenge to the Jewish world today and tell them, you think you believe in God? Don't reduce God to your own identity. Don't reduce God to your own gender. Look at the world around you. Look at the complexity of revelation and ask yourself the question, you guys in the boys club, can you pull it off on your own? Will all that God is about respond to what you are doing on your own? Now, when you do this within a discourse of obligation, it's a completely different experience, right? It's a completely different experience. It's not necessarily going to bring down the curtain of the machitza, for example. It's going to make sure that that curtain runs down the middle of the synagogue and doesn't put anybody at the back, right? Or in a little corner or up in a gallery somewhere, right? It's going to make sure that the, the, the woman's voice can be heard. It's not necessarily going to be able to overcome every example and every case in Jewish law where obligations are different from each other. I think that's a gradual pro process. And not just because I'm a conservative who wants to do things slowly because I want to be behind the times, but because I'm trying to move forward articulating a deep sense of obligation. Because what a tragedy it would be if we were to invite women to participate in the service and once that invitation, we, I'm being deliberate here, right? Once that invitation is, is, is issued with an open heart, 
the women can't be bothered to come and the men, who, the men who used to go there couldn't be bothered to come anyway and who needs to go to shul and what does it matter? That's an absolute tragedy and that's the tragedy that I think is affected by, by defining development and change in Judaism through the discourse of rights. However, if we can say we have an obligation and our obligation is to be a sacred community and to celebrate God and to celebrate creation, and you know what? We can't do it on our own. Men can't do it on their own. Women can't do it on their own. We need children. Perhaps we even need non-Jews, and we need to think in much, much broader and much, much greater terms about the breadth and the scale of creation and humanity if we want to be up to the challenge of making our religious life equal to the grandeur of the God we serve. That is the way I would articulate a vision of feminism. And I would say as follows, and here is, here is, the, here is the twist. I would say, final line, right? Everybody is called up to the seven. Even a woman, even a child. Why? And if we can articulate something that powerful, if we can buy into that deeply for theological reasons, we can do something really, really exciting. It's different from what's going on in the world around us. I believe in equal opportunities for women at work and all of that. But there's something else that needs to take place in the religious sphere. And my final point would be to say that I believe very, very deeply that the Jewish tradition, which is a halachic tradition, conceives of the halacha as an expression of theological commitment. One of the biggest problems we have in our generation, certainly in the Orthodox world, is that the halachic discourse is separated from the theological one, and in the non-Orthodox world, that the theological discourse is separated from the halachic one. That separation is a disaster. It's, it's giving up on the greatest accomplishment of Jewish learning, which is the connection between law and theology. And when we pay that price and we allow those things to fall apart, we fall into the trap of bigotry and of disengagement. The alternative, the alternative that I'm proposing, I believe, is a Jewish understanding of what feminism might be all about that resonates deeply within our tradition and that forces us to meet the challenge of being worthy of serving the God we believe in. Thank you very, very much. Bakasha. I'd like to ask you to pull it even further. Uh, even further than that, go ahead. <laughs> Remember, I'm not a liberal. That's as far as I go. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Theology is not a view of God. I've said this a hundred times. I don't know the first thing about God. I don't know. God is a mystery. I don't know about God. Humanity is hermaphroditic, right? Yes. The more I understand about humanity, the more richly I acknowledge what is in humanity, 
the more deeply I can start to conceive of what it means that we are made in God's image. I know that we're an image of something that we know nothing about. I think as we change our image, I think we're constantly changing our image. And I think as we change our image, we are discovering, we are discovering things in the image of God. I've got some news for you, right? Human beings are evil, right? Sometimes, right? So if that's in God's image, we need to think complexly about what that means. That was what I was talking about on Thursday night, right? When God tortures Abraham and tells him to kill his son. And when we, when, we, when we look at the different aspects and the different dimensions of humanity, we, we, can, we can start to conceive of the vastness and the conceptualization of God. I'll give you another one that is perhaps less popular. But humanity is spread across time. And what is, why am I so bound by the tradition? I'm so bound by the tradition because I don't want to define humanity in the terms of the specific period in which I happen to live. I think that's totally inadequate. I think we need to understand the otherness of other times. History is a deep religious obligation, as is anthropology. It's a deep religious obligation to understand the breadths of humanity. Read about different cultures, read about the, diff the vastly different ways in which different people think. And, 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 and this is something that I think takes us on a journey towards something infinite, not on a journey towards something that we can shut down and say God is male, God is female, God is asexual, God is bisexual, God is homosexual. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to pin it down. I, I, I think the purpose of thinking is to, is to prevent yourself from pinning things down and from understanding. I don't understand anything. I'm overwhelmed by everything. And it's the experience of being overwhelmed that I think opens us up to the possibility of talking about an open-ended theology. So I would resist pinning it down to God is this, God is that, God is good, God is bad, God is white, God is black, male, female, an England supporter or a Germany supporter, who knows, right? The, the, well, you probably supported England. But the, 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 the issue here is not, to, is not to understand God. The issue here is to remain open enough to resist reducing God into something that I've already understood. That's where I'm going. Yeah, Ari. Can we talk a little about the Shirah Hadashah, the minion you were to perform, and how yes. any of this that you're talking about was either... Okay, so Shirah Hadashah is a minyan in Yerushalayim. Sure. Shirah Hadashah is a minyan in Yerushalayim that inadequately implements the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Um, it's a wonderful place. Has anyone visited who's been to Shirah Hadashah? Okay, so it's a wonderful place. It's a fabulous atmosphere. It's a great place. It's full of liberals, um, but the um, the little group, the little group that founded Shirah Chadashah, that I had the privilege of being part of, there was an intimate circle. Um, it started with three people. I was one of those three, and then we expanded into a circle of about fifteen, and then it grew, and now there are seven hundred of us. Um, but the intuition that we started with, and this was really a big deal, we sat around and we said, we don't want to find a way of, in, of including women in prayer. That wasn't how we started, even though everybody thinks that that was how we started. We started because we sat around the room and we said, we all know that God is not a guy. And what are we going to do about it? Right? That, that we know that God is not a man. God is not male. What are we going to do about it? That was the starting intuition 
for the small group of people who came together and started thinking about this idea. And we, we, we chose to do two things. We chose to do two things, and they are three things. I apologize. And they are equally important to each other. The first is we made halachic innovations within an orthodox discourse that had never been done before. Talk about tomatoes or tomatoes or potatoes or potatoes. When we came out from our first Shabbat service and we were absolutely mortified to discover that Haaretz and Yediotach or not had covered this in the press, the first orthodox feminist Jewish we were convinced that there would be a delegation from Mea Sharim standing outside. <laughs> we came out like, and there was nobody there. It was great. Um, but, but what we did, what we did halachically is that we, 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 we distinguished between two different parts of the ritual in the prayers, um, which for maybe many of you is not satisfactory, but we distinguish between parts of the service which require a minyan and parts of the service that don't require a minyan such as Kabbalat Shabbat and Psukei de Zimra, as opposed to Shacharit and Musaf. And, and women lead the services for Psukei de Zimra and Kabbalat Shabbat. Men lead the services for Shacharit and Musaf, right? So, so that is unheard of in the Orthodox world that, that women are leading the services. There is a machitza in the shul. The machitza runs down the middle. We have Torah reading that um, is co Read the Torah is read by both men and women. Men and women have aliyot to the Torah, and men and women read from the Torah. Um, there's all sorts of halachic reasons why we made all sorts of decisions the way we did, and redrew the line and different things the way that we did. There's quite a complex choreography that that enables this to work and still feel orthodox. And what I think is really, really important is, um, you know, another egal minion in Jerusalem. There are there are plenty, right? Um, what we have done is offered an, offered a an opportunity for Orthodox women to remain Orthodox and to participate in a ritual in which they are expressed, which they are given public religious expression. Um, and that's something that's never been done before, and it's remained Orthodox, and sociologically it's Orthodox, and it's been mimicked all over the world. Um, there are 27 Shirach HaDasham Inyanim around the world now. Um, also in Israel, in America, in England, in Europe, they're all over the place. It's, it's, it's created a model which has, created, which has generated a significant inroad in orthodoxy. Um, so that's, that's the first issue that we, that we tackled. The second issue that we tackled is that we wanted to create a spiritual experience of prayer. Um, and that for us meant very much um, a tremendous emphasis on song. I personally love to sing. I think one of the things that characterizes our community is that we sing. The services are very long because we sing a lot. Those of you who are in CBI, the Shabbat got a shortened version of Kabbalat Shabbat from me, so you might have had a sense of just how long it is. Um, we sing a lot. Everybody sings together. When the entire community is singing together, the hierarchy of the community is leveled out. If everybody's singing, men are singing and women are singing, and and who is leading the services becomes, become, it's, it's a different, the, the leader of the services is a facilitator rather than a performer. And that experience of having the service facilitated by a, by a leader who is essentially inviting the whole community to participate, that is, in my view, a deeper feminist message than the halachic questions of who gets to do what. Right? Because the service is the voice of men and women singing together. It's very musical, it's very beautiful, and we have an emphasis musically on, on lyrical music. Um, you can go to other shuls, you can go to Hasidic shuls, some, I mean, it varies, but where, where there's a, a very masculine 
sound to the singing. Sounds like you know a, a team at a, you know fans at a football game. But but there's something lyrical and gentle about the music in Shira Hadashah and the way that we sing, which is very very important. The third thing that we do, which is very 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 important, and it's unusual in Israel. It's better known in America. Um, we have a tremendous tremendous emphasis on noticing the people who don't usually get noticed. Um, on Yom Kippur, the aliyot are not given to the donors in Shira Chadashah. The aliyot are given to the people who aren't married, to the people who don't have a place to be, who, haven't, who are unemployed. Um, we have a tremendous, tremendous emphasis on paying attention, on, on trying to defy the normal social hierarchy. Um, it's a, the one thing we do badly is visitors. If you visit, you'll probably have a rough time with it. I'll tell you why. We have hundreds of visitors and it's overwhelming. So it's the thing that we do badly is how do we deal with this? We're a tourist attraction in Jerusalem. I hate it. It's really terrible. On the one hand, I want to welcome the whole world. And on the other, you can't notice who's, who are new members of a community. It's one of the most lovely things is to walk into a synagogue and somebody says, oh, you're a visitor. Right? In our show, you walk into a synagogue, oh, you're a member? <laughs> Um, because we really, are, we really are overwhelmed with visitors. It's quite a challenge. Um, but the idea is, is to provide meals for people who don't have, um, to provide community, sport, uh, community support. Um, and it really is overwhelming. But our motivation for doing it is not, is not just um, you know, to have a community. Our motivation for doing it is a feminist motivation. Because feminism is not just about women. Feminism is about, is about noticing voices that are silenced in humanity. It's about paying attention to the things that we don't dignify. And, and that is the third agenda that is very, very central to our community. So we have these three agendas that play a role in the way in which we run the communal life. And it's been a tremendous success. It's, it's really been an overwhelming, an overwhelming journey. And I do, even though we are overwhelmed with visitors, I do invite you. Come. Visit. Um, my question, my question really yeah. was halakhically, when you were, when you allowed women, encouraged women, and had women read from the Torah, how, what halakhic justification or interpretation did you get? The one you just spoke about, or different people do it in different ways. That's one of the things about Jerusalem is it's full of people who, who can do this stuff, um, and it, there are different people who make the argument in different ways, and we have an internal debate, we have an internal discourse, what the reasons are. Um, there are, there's a debate in the shul about what, where to draw the line halachically. There are certain things that we don't do that there are people who think we should do. There are certain, certain things that we've changed. And there's little questions. Who can lead halal? So who can lead halal? It's not a simple question because it depends which halal. Rosh Chodesh halal, Sukkot halal, Pesach halal, first day Pesach, the last six days of Pesach. They all have different statuses and there are actually four different reasons for why we say halal and two different types of halal. So these are issues that we're constantly, that we're constantly debating. We have a community that is equipped um, with people who are far more knowledgeable than me and who engage right, in this discourse this richly. you had about the Torah and you cite the Talmudic arguments, was there one argument that was used to... No, there were about three. There were about three different positions on this issue. I think the position that I presented is more or less the position that characterized the founding group. Um, but there were different positions on this issue. And, and that's one of the things that was interesting is that we were kind of an eclectic group who came together 
Um, despite the fact that we had slightly different agendas and slightly different understandings of what our motivations were. And that's one of our biggest challenges, is how do we, how do we resolve the different agendas that brought this group together? Um, my way of reading it, I think, characterizes the founding group. But there are other people in the community with other voices, and there are many of them who are talking about feminist rights. So, you know, I don't get to call all the shots. Yes? I'll take two more questions. Sure. So, um, you're... you're your argument for the, um, the centrality of uh, um, obligation is based on halakha principle. You know, from when you take that halakha reasoning and you talk to other people in the Orthodox community about it, what kind of reactions do you get? Do, they, do you find that you're convincing people, or are so, they so here's the thing. So here's the thing. Um, first of all, without, without referring specifically to me, we um, started off as a small group of 15. And we're now a regular community with regular members of about 700. So there were, there were hundreds of people who decided that they could find what we were doing compelling and become part of it. So, and there are people who've come in, I mean, there are people who've joined Shira Khadijah who you wouldn't imagine would possibly ever be part of our community. Um, we have a breast of a chassid um, who has his own mystical reasons for thinking, for thinking along the lines that I'm talking about. We have, we have people from all sorts of different backgrounds. So just our existence on the scenery is compelling and, and convinces people. That's one. Two, before we started the community, I did circles going around various different rabbis who I find to be um, my spiritual leaders, people whose opinion is important to me. Um, and you can imagine that these are not simple conversations and they went on for hours and we were bashing through the texts and going through books and thinking about it and discussing it together. Um, there were those who objected. There were those who supported. And most interestingly and most commonly, there were those who said, you're right, but I won't put my name to it. Um, that was the most common response from people who I can't, whose identities I cannot divulge because that was part of the deal. I'll talk to you about this, but this is in confidence. But there were people who said to me, I think you should do this. But if I say that publicly, I'll be frazzled. Um, and that's something that I encountered. I can tell you another story, which is, which is interesting. If you've been following some of my talks about peace, right? So you know that I go off to the Sumerian hilltops. So one of the, one of the big Sumerian hilltop rabbis that I, that I brought into my discourse about peace, when I, when I actually phoned him up for the first time and said, I want you to be part of this peace thing, his first, he asked me two questions. Does your wife cover her hair and which synagogue do you go to, right? That was straight out, before, yeah, before peace, before anything. Are you religious? Does your wife cover her hair? And which synagogue do you go to? Answer was yes, no, Shirach HaDashah. Okay? He answered me, he said, come to my house, we'll talk about your peace project. He joined it, by the way. But I want you to promise me that you'll give me half an hour to talk to you about Shirach HaDashah at, at the end of the whole discussion about peace. So um, we had this whole thing and I managed to recruit him to the group and it was a very important story for me and I think I've told it in bits and pieces. But at the end he said, right, now I want my half hour. And he quizzed me on Shirach HaDashah. And he quizzed me and quizzed me and quizzed me and we did all the texts and we did the whole thing. It was a very exhausting evening. I don't know how I got home that night. Um, and at the end of it, he said to me, halachically, I think 
you're absolutely right. But I completely disagree with what you're doing. And his argument was, some of you might find this offensive. I did. Um, his argument was, I think that if we go this way, we'll destroy family life. It will become impossible for, for, for women to carry the burdens that society still forces upon them and to participate with the kind of obligation in the synagogue life that you are expecting of them. That was his objection. Um, so he, what was interesting was that he accepted my theological and halachic argumentation and made a sociological argument for why, for why, he, thought it was, for why he thought it was potentially destructive. And I'll tell you the truth. I completely disagree with him, but I don't think he's entirely, entirely insensitive to reality. I think, I think there are complexities. I can feel it in my own family life and in the lives of, of my close circle of friends. Um, it's not simple. It's not simple. It's not straightforward. There are, there, are, there are things and allocations within family life, allocations of responsibility within family life, that, um, that make it very, very difficult to live, to live this way, right? And, and I th you know, I don't agree with him, but I also don't, I don't dismiss the sensitivity that he surfaced. That was one of the interesting responses that we get. But the overall one was, you're right, but you're wrong, right? <laughs> you, the minyan does not conclude What we do, we had a brilliant way of getting around that one. Um, what we do is that we don't start the services until there are 20 people in shul. We need at least 10 men and 10 women. So halachically, we call it, we call it the mega minion. Um, we, halachically, um, we don't confront the question of counting women as part of the 10, right? But, but we do oblige ourselves. It's exactly an example of the model that I'm talking about. We generate a feminist obligation, and you bet we stick to it. If there are 10 men and nine women, and this was a major subject of controversy. There are 10 men, nine women, and a guy who wants to say Kaddish. So, Nebuch, he wants to say Kaddish. And there are 10 men, you're not gonna let him say Kaddish? I mean, these, these create very, very complex dilemmas for, for a community of Orthodox people, right? But we wait for 10 men and 10 women before we start services. And that is, that's quite a challenge. But we take it as seriously as we can. Yes, Nira. Last one. Oh, that's a different lecture. Yeah, we've made lots of progress. Thank God, we've made lots of progress. But that's a different. That's I a different. Ask, that's that question, which is, um, we may have discussed this earlier, but it seems that women's services in the Orthodox world, where women lead the service, read Torah, do it on their own. Yeah. Uh, it seems on the East Coast it is much more accepted, but on the West Coast, even in our community, not only is it not there, it's not encouraged. It may even be discouraged. So. Yeah, I'm completely against it. I'm completely against it. I think women's services just perpetuates the problem. It just puts the shoe on the other foot. I, I, don't, I don't see, I don't, the, I, I, if this whole talk that I just gave, right? How, how, are we any better, how, how is the situation any better off if men are excluded? I, I don't get that. It just makes no sense to me. The question, the, the question needs to be, everybody. Um, if, we, if we separate women from men the other way around, I don't see that how, that, how that meets the obligation that I'm trying to articulate. So I personally am I'm dead against it. I don't like women's services. I think it's a mistake.
but personally, I don't think so. I don't, make, I don't, I don't see how you, if, if you don't count women in a minyan, which is a reason for having a women's service, right? So how can you do all that stuff? And for people who want to think in those terms, the fact that there are 10 men in the mega minion solves a lot of problems. Um, the halachic argumentation for the women's service, I don't think it's well thought through. It doesn't, it doesn't hold. Yes? So I have a halachic problem with that and a theological problem with that. Yeah, yeah, but there I have a theological problem. I just don't see. Yeah, no, it happens in Israel as well. Thank you very much, everybody.